makes perfect sense because self-determination is about power and discovering the power that you contain in yourself. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And manifesting it for your purposes. The people who run the world understand the power that we hold. They understand the money that we hold. And they harvest it and reap it for their own benefits and take the world in directions that we don't approve of. We're talking about our self-determination because we need to extract our will from them, to extract our power from them, and begin to use our power as we see fit to make the world a better place, to humanize the earth and the people who live in it and on it. We want you to continue to listen to self-determination and contemplate, meditate, marinate on your own power. This is OBDK Kamaru. You're listening to Self-Determination on KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston. Good evening and welcome to Self-Determination. I'm OBDK Kamau. Akua Fayette is here, but she's not at the mic right now. So uh, we will get her in to talk with you in just a few minutes. We have a show that we are very excited about tonight. Our guest is a gentleman from uh, Panama named Egberto Willis. He is a U.S. citizen. He has a very interesting take on our politics and economy, very, very, very involved and activist. He has a book out named As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. So there are a couple of uh, phrases in there that, uh, what do you call them, buzzwords. So we're going to ask him about class warfare and get some of his personal background. And then we're going to get into this book. He's done a lot of looking at our economic system, has a lot of interesting things to say about it. All right, and welcome back to Self-Determination. That was uh, really something cool. Yeah. I tell you what, let's get right into Brother Egberto Willis. Once again, the title of his book is As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. Brother Egberto, who, who's here with his wife, and we want to thank her for coming in, too. Uh, Brother Egberto, welcome to Self-Determination. Thank you, first of all, for having me. Uh, I think we met out there at Occupy Houston, and when I um, gave you the book and you said, ah, you wanted to have me on the show, I've got to tell you that I was most excited because I think this is something, uh, a lot of the things that I cover in the book, I mean, even though uh, I think a lot of people know all these things, but maybe don't all put it together because, I mean, it is nothing, uh, it's not something that uh, we don't feel, it's not something that we don't see. It is something that is there for us all, but we just don't all put it together to actually do what has to be done to mitigate, you know, all, all that's been done. And I, I want to thank you because, as you say, um, many of the things that you write are, are pretty 
obvious, but <clears throat> particularly, you, and you talk about the right-wing misinformation machine in your book, uh, if, if you're not sharp, if you're not discerning, then you can get taken off in all of the noise that you hear. And, and uh, the right wing follows the uh, famous admonition by Adolf Hitler that says, tell a big lie over and over and over again, and people will begin to believe it. But before we go there, Egberto, would you first introduce yourself to us, uh, where you're from, how you ended up here, those kind of things. Just give us a little personal background. Sure. I am... I am originally from Central America, Panama, and for those who don't know too much about Panama, um, when uh, my folks, or I'm the descendants of the people who actually built the Panama Canal, uh, we are all, or, or, or most of us that uh, that are down there, uh, the black folks in Panama actually migrated from the Caribbean to build a canal, uh, or the, the ones that were on the Caribbean coast. And that is my actual origin. I came over here to go to school back in 1979. I went to uh, the University of Texas, but before I got there, I made a quick stop in a little town in Texas called Brenham. I spent a little, my first year at a college called Lynn College. You know, um, back home, uh, that was my way to get here. I got a music scholarship. I always wanted to be an engineer, but my path was to get a music scholarship to play in a band out there. So I got out here and um, did the band thing for a while. Before I get into it, it's interesting because over in Panama, the United States is a land of plenty, skyscrapers, and the works. And I remember landing in Houston, and first of all, my accent was a lot deeper than it is right now. And I got into Houston, and the first thing I had was people understanding me on how to get to Brenham. But anyway, I got to Brenham, Texas, got to Blinn College, and it was nothing that I expected. I expected my skyscrapers. There oh, no. no. <laughs> I wanted my buildings. Instead, <laughs> I saw a nice campus with a whole lot of cows surrounded in the place, and it wasn't. <laughs> well, where did you fly into? You flew into Houston? Houston Intercontinental Airport. That's a pretty good drive to Brenham, huh? Yes. I took the Greyhound. A quick, a quick joke. I got to Brenham, and I, I mean, to Houston. And I looked at the people and I said, uh, I need to get to Blin- uh, to this place called Brenham, Texas. Brenham. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. From Panama, that's how we say it. Yes. Brenham, Texas. And the lady said, uh, there is no Brenham, Texas. And I said, yes, there is. Look at the book. She said, this is not Brenham, Texas. This is Brenham, Texas. <laughs> so I said, okay, ma'am, could I please get a ticket to Brenham, Texas? And she gave me my ticket to Brenham, Texas. Talk about how the United States was seen uh, before you got here, when you were living in Panama. How how was this country seen uh, by the people you grew up with, the people who raised you? The United States was the land of plenty, and the United States was the place everybody who could wanted to go to. Okay, that that is the United States that I grew up knowing. I grew up knowing the United States and said, ah, when you know, if if you want to be somebody, you can actually come out here, and that's what we did. A lot of a lot of folks that grew up with me in Panama, a lot of us are over here because again, we saw, and our parents, uh, uh, wherever they could, helped us to get over here, to come over 
and make a life. And a lot of us did that. So the America that I knew, and, and, and let me say this plainly, the America that I knew coming out here as a foreigner is not the America of today at all. Okay, the America... So when did you come? What did you I came in 1979. Okay. And that was during, I, I think, uh, the last year of Car the Carter administration. Right, and right. I, re I remembered the whole thing. And I went through that part in the book on, on, on the impact that Carter uh, had on me and, and the impact of Reagan, Bush, and, and so forth. So when I, when I got into the country, it was, uh, again... It was a different country than what we see. It was a much more honest country. There were a lot of problems, but uh, as far as this green, this guy green behind the ears coming in, oh, it was wonderful. It was great. But as you know, I've mentioned several times in the book, what Supply Side has done. But again, uh, after leaving Blinn uh, for the first year, I worked that summer, hours upon hours in order to build enough funds to go to, at that time it was either going to be the uh, University of Texas or A&M and, and uh, finally ended up at the University of Texas and that is where my political activism, if you will, uh, started. It started with, uh, I don't know if you remember, that was a time during the apartheid, uh, uh, apartheid in South right. Africa. Mm -hmm. We did all the marches on campus for the divestiture of uh, the, all the monies that the University of Texas had in the... Um, oh, okay, you were yeah. involved in that. I was involved in the South African Liberation Action Committee back then. Uh, and I remember a, 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 an interesting incident, and this may be kind of off, off topic with the uh, book, but I was in a in a church then it was called the Maranatha Christian Center and I went to this uh, church and when we were starting to do the activism for again the divestiture of the the monies from the university from uh, South Africa I went to my minister and I looked at him and I said hey I'd like the church to help me go ahead and march in campus and let's get this stuff done and the preacher, very nice, and, you know, we sat down in his office, and he said, I understand what you want me to do, Edberta, but we don't really do that. And I'm, I said, why? And he said, well, we don't do that. I'm like, but look, this is no different than the slavery that we had in America, and, you know, we went past that, and I gave him the, the whole works. And then he looked at me, and he said, Egberto, uh, I don't know how you're going to take this, but do you know that in the Bible... Jesus never spoke out against slavery. In fact, Jesus said... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Jesus said, servants, slaves, 
honor thy masters. And masters, he gave them a code on how he should treat his those people. And I found that kind of interesting. So what did I do? I went home and I wrote the whole I read the whole darn New Testament. Mm-hmm. And by God, the preacher was right. You know, I looked through the whole Bible and I couldn't find a part of the Bible that said that. So I left that church. So I know that's right. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> so, yes. Okay. Well, I was going to say, uh, you know, uh, one of the things, and I don't know uh, how many of the people that you grew up with shared it, but certainly in your house, you all were very curious and involved in U.S. politics prior to you coming here. Absolutely. It's interesting that it's only in the United States that people don't know about the politics of the United States. Okay. <laughs> the, the, the 6% who vote, right. for instance. Uh, I, I, can, I can bring anybody from Central America right now and ask them something about the United States, and I can almost guarantee you that they will be able to tell you a lot more about the United States than a lot of us here in the United States. And one of the reasons, and again, when you are in a position of power, you don't have to worry as much about other things and, you know, so when you're from Panama or Costa Rica or all these other places where the United States is, uh, has one of, is a preeminent power in the region, well, you always want to <laughs> know what's going on over there. And, again, there are quite a few people down there that you'll find. And, again, you said in my household, my household was very well aware of just about everything that occurred in the United States. Now, then again, uh, we were, my parents or my father worked for the American government in Panama, so we sort of uh, had an, an additional incentive uh, to do that. I mean, after all, we, we got educated in both languages, in both Spanish and English. We got educated on both Panamanian politics and American politics. So, in a way, we had a, 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 a big advantage in that regards. But if you were to look at the curriculum down there, you'll still see a strong emphasis on geography and politics that is not you know localized to um to to your particular country but includes america and beyond so it's it's it you know it, it, it's a pretty complete education if you will so uh talk to me about um you say in particular that the downward economic spiral started with ronald reagan who uh, a lot of people, maybe not in our audience, but a lot of people in this country see as iconic, see as someone who almost uh, couldn't fail. I, I think he screwed up in several places. But why did you, uh, you know, from somebody who kind of systematically studied him, why do you think that this downward turn became, began under his administration? Supply-side economics, trickle-down economics. Uh, we were running a, a small deficit back in uh, just when Carter left office. In those days, we thought those were large deficits. We had a president, uh, uh, Reagan, that campaigned against Bush Sr., well, you know, Bush the father, and, and said that he would bring back the strength of America by increasing the military, he was going to cut taxes, 
and still not, yes, cut some social programs, but for the most part, keep these programs somewhat intact. Otherwise, of course, he doesn't get elected. That is, first of all, complete nonsense. It may, it, it, it's, it, it's, it makes mathematically no sense whatsoever. And I want to go because, see, this is what people hear, uh, you know, when they look, even seeing, um, NN, which, and, and you talked about MSNBC, of right. course, Fox is a joke. Right. Uh, I mean, and I'm not saying that because we always say Fox is a joke. You can do the research. If you can stand it, you can listen to them. They, the lies that they tell are just unbelievable. Uh, but uh, one of the things that they push is this whole supply side thing, and, and they are pushing it now with Grover Norquist, et cetera, that if you cut taxes, you can raise revenue. It, there, there is a actual... <coughs> i tell you something that is interesting. The Bush uh, senior called it voodoo academic. That's where, that's where you got where exactly where I was going. And actually, while Bush was running against Reagan in 1979, 1980, in the primaries, Bush ran against Reagan calling that voodoo economics. And he laid out the plan exactly why it was voodoo economics. And I don't know if you noticed in the book, I actually gave quite a bit of kudos to Bush Sr. Yes. And okay. the reason I gave kudos to Bush Sr. is because he had in what we would call in Panama pelotas. And that means he had... Okay. Yes. Cajones, uh, you right. know, we, we could say it in every language but English. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason, I, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of elaborate on that, but uh, the reason it was voodoo economics was that that couldn't be done. And the reality is uh, what it really does is it shifts, uh, it shifts the burden of, uh, you know, the burden of funding or government downwards. But before I go there, um, one of the reasons why these things doesn't work, don't work, and I saw, and I didn't get that in the book because I didn't have that information then. But you can actually make a case that if you send money to those who hoard money, in other words, if you move, if, if you have a lot of money concentrating at the top, because what something known as a marginal propensity to consume of those people at the top. They won't spend, there's not enough of them to spend the kinds of monies needed to move the economy around. They also generally have what they need. They have the big house, they have the cars, they have the jewelry, they have the investments. Their spending money does not necessarily make the economy run. And not paying any interest because their credit card is just a mean of having plastic, convenient money. Exactly. Exactly, and, and that is that, and and what was interesting, the numbers that I said that that I didn't get to put in the book at the time, was that during 1929, the same income disparity that we had back then is what we've approached now, and the same type of economic downturn that we had then is what we're having now. But the difference is that. We can mitigate this because we have sort of a social program in that, well, we're still passing these bills constantly to extend unemployment, which there wasn't that back in 29. We, Social Security, it wasn't back in 29. So what I, what I constantly say is we are actually in a depression right now. It's just that 
the type of depression that we are we're in is that people are are suffering silently. Where you used to have those soup kitchens and the people yeah. in twenty nine. Nice YouTube and internet and right. games and stuff to keep them mentally right. occupied. Eggs and and the and the. And the uh, uh, Jerry Springer shows. And <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! You, you know, I called my cable company because I finally say I'm giving AT and T the boot. They just about drove me up the wall, and they said, "Well, you know, you can get this package with Fox." I says, "You could not pay me to watch Fox. Why is that you give Fox to the poor people when they need to be watching something with a little more intellect?" Right. I say, "I think this is a racist setup package." Yes. yes. And so I just yacked it off and went to another company. Yeah, but it is interesting that you said um, it's a racist setup package because I, I, I put it a little bit further than that. It is it used to be a racist setup package if you saw who was on Jerry Springer. I, I'm already, I have a oh. confession to make. I watched Jerry Springer a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and, you did. And here's what happened. <laughs> I turned the thing on. I watched it. And I couldn't stop. Really? Not one hour. Really? My daughter, I was out, you know, my grandchildren are here. So I was out hanging out with them, uh, with the youngest two. And she it wasn't Jerry Springer. It was similar. Okay, one of those and she shows. said, Daddy, you know, I don't watch TV at home, but now that I'm here, I'm watching TV. She said, I started watching this. I couldn't stop. Right. You know, really? I guess it's like watching a, a, a car wreck. You know, you don't want to see a car wreck, but it's hard not to watch it. It's hard not but, to but see, you, you know. You know what? I turned the channel because I was flipping through looking for something, and it was they were talking news, and it sounded pretty sensible the first few sentences. And then they were saying stuff, and I'm saying, I didn't know. That's not. Wait a minute. It was Fox. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm doing? Yeah. So that's what they're telling. That's why these people are so messed up. I mean, they take stuff and they twist it and they lie about it. And I mean, it's like straight face lying, you yeah. know, about stuff. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, this world is messed it, up. But, you know, I, I, the reason I brought up the the uh, Jerry Springer thing is was to segue into when you mentioned about how racist mm -hmm. these things were. Uh, Packages that they set up for poor right. people. But it's interesting because I hadn't seen any of these programs in a long time. And then I saw it this time, and I noticed what you see on these programs have changed. Because whereas the people acting crazy was always the black or minorities, now it isn't. It is American general. So mm. here's a joke. I was, I was reading a piece by an English professor in um, in in England, I don't remember it. There's a YouTube video on it, and I don't know if you remember the riots that you had in England about a month ago or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And this guy comes on 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 this panel, and he said, uh, "White people have become the new black," <laughs> and it, it went. I mean, I did a blog article about it, and the blog article that I did about it went sort of viral. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it was. And as much as what the guy said was, I mean, insensitive, racist, and so forth, because what he's saying, what he's trying to say is when he says white has become the new black is that he's equating black with being below, low, or whatever. That's what he was trying to do. But in effect, what made sense about what he's doing is exactly what Fox News is doing here in America. The problems that we have, and uh, the book covers a whole lot of problems that are uh, socioeconomic problems, economic problems. But if we, if we have people worried about those kinds of things, 
that we see on Jerry Springer. If we have people, mm-hmm. who are, you know, we're suddenly in the same boat, and now it's, you know, it's no longer. A, I mean, and I, I get in trouble a whole lot about this. If it, Go ahead. No, I'm going to tell you. But I want you to hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. When we come back, we're going to be discussing capitalism. If the audience wants to talk with Egberto, the number here is 713-526-5738. And uh, we're going to get into why he says Bush Sr. was a good president, uh, what his issues are with... with, uh, Did you really say it like that? No, it was not. Okay. Well, that's the last Republican you could kind of stomach. Yes. Maybe that, I'm, I'm sorry, Maybe I don't. He was, a, he was the one that you could go back and say, he had some sense. Yeah. If he is, had some, Yeah. Know. And, and he, he did, uh, which, which is what got him out after only one term. Yeah, so we're talking with Egberto Willis. He is the author of As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. And we will also talk about what he means when he uses the term class warfare. Once again, 713-526-5738. All right, we're back with Egberto Willis. You're listening to Self Determination. I'm OBDK Kamal. And I'm a cool And uh, you know, we we kind of working it. I'm, you know, you, I was just looking at you. I was really proud. I say, boy, my brother is just swooping out, and he's not having to stop and explain anything. He's just doing his thing. I'm at least perpetrating it. I look like I know what I'm doing. We, we were somewhere, and I was just walking, and my daughter said, Mama, one thing I can say about you, you look like you know where you're going, but you're going the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> but you look like you know where you're going. <laughs> Once again, we're back with Egberto Willis. And uh, let's skip to capitalism. We were talking about icons, how Reagan is an icon, and, of course, capitalism, the whole thought of it, you know, brings tears to some people's eyes because they are caught up in it and love it. It brings tears to other people's eyes because they're getting kicked in the butt by the whole... Yeah. (laughs) Talk about capitalism and, and what criticisms you have of the kind of capitalism that's currently being practiced in America and how it's not good, certainly for consumers and for everyday people, but also how, how you say it's not good for entrepreneurs either. Oh, not at all. We, we practice a kind of capitalism I call unfettered capitalism, which is sort of a dog-eat-dog capitalism. Here's, here's the reality. You, uh, who do you consider the most important people in this world, in our country? As far as I'm concerned, the, one of some of the most important people in the country are teachers. Teachers are the ones that move our society forward. They're the ones that educate. They're the ones that do all these things. But there is capitalism that says that those who move capital deserve all the rewards. They make the most. They do all these things. What is capitalism really? Capitalism just says... Uh, part, well, parts of capitalism. If you have a company and you want to uh, do something with your company, you go to the capital markets. The capital markets raise capital for your company, and you can expand your company, etc., etc., etc. And for that, that person makes an inordinate amount of monies. <laughs> your business is successful. Good for you. Now, I my belief is that. Capitalism should be a tool to get things done. Capitalism should be a tool that allows you 
to get uh, uh, financing for your business, etc. But those who provide those financing should not. There's no extra effort or reward that they provide to you that determine, or rather, that 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 is the reason for the types of incomes that they make. Um, if you take a look at, uh, and I gave some examples in in the book where the system that we have today, and it's not only uh, both pat the patent system, the uh, uh, the patent system specifically is one that I have a problem with. It's actually something that deters small businesses from being able to actually move on. I, I gave an example of myself. There there is a particular product that I wanted to create and in doing the research for creating this particular product, it's a software product, I realized that one of our big corporations, specifically Amazon, had the patent on this particular product or this particular procedure, which made it that in as much as it was my idea as well, I couldn't come out with it. As another example, uh, I don't remember the company, but I think it's Monsanto, but I'm not sure. Uh, don't quote me on that. This company creates uh, genetically modified seeds. Farmers go out, plant. Uh, uh, you may have a farmer on lot A that plants a genetically modified uh, seeds. Farmer on, on, on land B, he goes out and he plants real seeds, and they get cross-pollinated. The, comp the corporation sends out people, check the seeds, and find out that because they were cross-pollinated, the guy who used his own seeds, seeds got corrupted, and thus he gets sued as a farmer for using the corporation's product and needs to pay for it. So I give a whole lot of examples of the type of, um, the, the type, and, and, and I bundle all of this into capitalism because this is what, this is the type that, that we actually practice here. The average person doesn't really have the right to uh, to create as they would. There was a uh, there was a program on CNN a couple of weeks ago, and what they did is they put a whole bunch of people in a home to create products. And the whole goal behind this product was to go into San, I think it was San Francisco or one of the California towns to convince venture capitalists that they needed to invest in these. These these little companies and and it ha this happened to be what what the pro the gist of the program was to get I think it was five or so black entrepreneurs in a house they had to come out with a product and all these guys had to go give a pitch for this product the, the products that they created with and somebody was going to decide if their product was worthy of getting capital to move forward now. What really got me upset about the program is all of these guys had viable products that they are coming up with, but we are going to sit down and decide the viability of a product based on capital markets from people who don't necessarily have the wherewithal or the know-withal, what I call the know-withal on these things that are being developed. And we have that all over the country. We have where people make decisions on who will succeed and who will fail based on the capital markets, which has nothing to do with the success of the individual. So uh, that, is a, that, is a, that is a problem that the type of capitalism that we practice invokes. Another part about it is how we treat capital versus income. Uh, 
Whereas uh, the, a guy who goes to work every day, uh, he comes home, he pays, uh, he pays up to 38, 39% in income tax on what I call working man's capital. His labor, his labor. labor, his labor. A wealthy person sits down at the pool, he drinks his tea, he turns on his laptop, he looks to see how much his stock has appreciated. It is appreciated quite a bit. He goes and he sells it. He makes capital gains, which, as far as I'm concerned, is also income. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But that is capped at 15%. So, therefore, the person who is wealthy, who has the opportunity to maximize that wealth by doing nothing, just watching a market go up, he is rewarded for, for doing nothing, while at the same time the guy who goes out to work is has to pay a higher rate. The question you then ask yourself is, well, the people that we like to malign, the poor person, even the lousy poor person, that person who really doesn't want to go out to work, what incentive is there for him to say, oh, I want to make something better of myself, when he can see the way the system works as well, people that are, these are people that also, for all practical purposes, do no work. Let me ask you this. One of the things that I found it interesting that you said, and after this we're going to go to the phone. Once again, if you want to, our guest is Egberto Willis, and uh, his book is, as I see it, uh, Class Warfare, as the only resort to right-wing doom. One of the things that you said that was very interesting to me, you said the way that capitalism in the U.S. is currently being practiced is that it will turn every American into a unit of labor and that if they are reduced to this, then they are incapable of competing with units of labor around the world. What did you mean when you said that? Absolutely so, and we actually see that in practice today, right now. And it goes to what we've done. What I call it is a normalization of wages. How can we possibly compete with a... Let's use China as an example. China has very low environmental standards. China has very low uh, wages. And what our, our people are asked to do is to constantly modify their wages to make labor cheap. Otherwise, we move it overseas. What that means is that, and again, this is where the market works. If I'm a corporation and I have to maximize my profits and I have country A who can make something at a much cheaper price than America, then I move these things over to to country country. A. And what happens then is when there are enough unemployed in America vis-a-vis today here with a 9.5% but really 16% unemployment, what happens then is because of supply and demand, which does work, supply and demand does work. Therefore, as we get more unemployed, they are willing, they are, not they are willing, they, are, they have to work for less and thus the normalization of wages. Our wage, by definition, has to fall. What does that make us? A simple unit of labor. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, bring the caller on the air once again. The number here is 713526KPFT. But... Um, do you think that that uh, the one percent, if if we want to use that term, has purposely decided to wipe out the middle class? No. Okay. I, I don't think so. I, I mean, uh, uh, it's what ha- what has happened, but I don't think 
all the people at the top that way. But right now we we have group think, you know, uh, and 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 I think that has a lot to play with it. Okay, we're going to go to the phone. We can discuss that in more detail later. Hello, you're on the air with Egberto. Yeah, good evening. Yes, we uh, can hear you. Okay, yeah, yeah good evening. Hey, Jesus, hello? Yeah, go right ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's it's not Jesus that uh, speaks approvingly of uh, slavery. It's, it's uh, St. Paul. Uh, for instance, in Ephesians, he says... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. I've never seen anywhere where G- Jesus spoke um, uh, uh, favorably of, of slavery. Uh, certainly, slavery was a far different institution in the Hellenistic yeah. world than it is uh uh, the slavery that we had in the uh, on the American continent. Um, you, you, you make a very important point, and I, I just want to say that Egberto didn't say Jesus. The minister in uh, Austin, I believe, said this is yeah. what Jesus said. So your your point is That's right. thank you. Your point is very well taken. Yeah. Now, now, you know, I had a similar experience. He went to the Methodist Church or Maranatha Church actually, and tried to. Uh, get them to uh, uh, um, take a stand against uh, apartheid. And I remember uh, uh, here in the here in the Bay Area um, uh, listening to Christian radio, um, the, they were absolute, they loved apartheid, South Africa. Now, who, who loved um, they, it? They, they spoke of it as being um, a, a, a strongly Christian country. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, what. Uh, and that, yeah. uh, that the if the uh, anti-apartheid people uh, won, they would massacre all the whites, and it'd be a bloodbath, and be genocide. And uh, they said uh, 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 Mandela was was uh, like Hitler, and so on. And uh, you know, it's funny because they changed their tune after. After apartheid fell, just a couple of years later, they had missionaries coming from South Africa saying, uh, "Oh, you know, we're, we're triumphant. We got rid of apartheid. Apartheid was evil. People <laughs> 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 were against it all the time." When just a couple of years later, a couple of years earlier, they were speaking so uh, um, approvingly of, uh, of apartheid. Uh, but, you know, they had all these excuses, you know, that uh, South Africa was a young country, um, that uh, we didn't have a right to tell other countries what to do, that other countries had to figure out their own stuff. And, uh, um, you know, as Christians, we have to t- take a moral stand about everything in the world. And and that's why I wanted to ask, um, uh, uh, is it Eduardo? Egberto. Roberto. That's close enough. Anyway, I wanted to ask your guest, uh, uh, Senor Willies, about uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, Reagan's uh, uh, Central American policy because I, I thought it, I thought it was just a disaster. I mean, I'm I'm not particularly pro-communist, uh, but um, it didn't seem to be it didn't seem to me to be a particularly effective way of fighting communism because he was supporting the bad guys. He was supporting the death squads and the fascist governments in Central America. From so in effect it was making communism look good. Amen. So, thank he was you. actually promoting communism in a sense. Thank you for that call. And Egberto, while you're answering his question, because you're really right, I've mischaracterized, and forgive me, uh, your entire 
uh, 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 view of Bush because you you might want to talk about his invasion of Panama when you want to talk about failed and disastrous Central yeah, America. Yeah. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you for calling. You're calling from the Bay Area? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, listening over the Internet. All right, then. I, um, your, your station is so much better than our local uh, Pacific station. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for, And please keep listening and keep calling, okay? Uh, I, I later want to ask a qu- uh, kind of a capitalist question because I'm very interested in economics. And I think because people sometimes try to separate morals and ethics and goodness away from capitalism that's what makes it destruct you know destructive because you always have to have some balance in life and to me nothing can be separated totally from some kind of spiritual principle in order for it to really work it's going to fall apart eventually if it's just definitely against you know that that part of of, of life Say, for instance, a person has a drugstore, and it's been there for 15, 20 years, has built customers, and is doing very well. Somebody with a lot of money come in and build a big, beautiful drugstore, lower prices. People are not that dedicated to you when the prices are low because they've got financial. So they start going to that store. You go out of business. And it's like vultures to me because you are uh, coming in on someone else's turf like, uh, there's a place where there was a uh, an art shop, and it was an empty spot right next door. And someone said to me, well, why don't you rent that place for your art shop? I wouldn't want anybody to do that to me, and I wouldn't do that to anyone, not just right there selling exactly the same stuff and with the same kind of clients and just kind of like poaching on that person's clients. Now, I may move a few blocks up the street or out of the way, but I would definitely not go right there where everybody come got to make a choice, this door, that door. But that's what people say capitalism is. You just jump and grab opportunity, and you don't care. That is what is unregulated, unfettered capitalism. Capitalism doesn't know humanity. Yeah. Capitalism does not know humanity. And this is what I constantly talk about. Capitalism should be a tool and not a god. Mm-hmm. Now, what we have made capitalism in America is a god. In other words, everything is towards uh, the market. If you listen to CNBC or any of these these channels, it's about the market, the market, the market. Mm-hmm. A market has no morals. A market doesn't know humanity. A market doesn't know sickness. I had a discussion with a, uh, uh, one of my friends in, in, in the gym, and we were speaking about exactly what you just talked about, mm-hmm. Walmart and cheaper prices. Mm-hmm. And I said, my wife loves Walmart. Okay, and then they tell me, why, why is, uh, should she stop going to Walmart? And I said, no, that then put us at a competitive disadvantage, and this is what I mean by that. It is true that Walmart goes into a place and decimates the local industry. But until we have the people out there, until we get together and say, you know what, we need to have a national policy that says we are going to protect our industries, we are going to protect. As an example, our form of capitalism has made America unsafe. Ah, Republicans, hear that. Our national policy on our capitalist structure has made us unsafe. Why has it made us unsafe? We no longer have people who manufacture uh, uh, parts for certain uh, of our military products, so therefore we have to import it for mm-hmm. a country that could later... You have your enemy country. making your bolts and screws and nuts to hold your stuff together. China, is that <laughs> what's happening? Yeah. It's a national... And until, until we are able to sit down... And, and, you know, we should start doing that. And I don't know why... Those who want to win elections, uh, Democrats, and I can say why, because they're complicit. 
I I am a I'm a one I'm 100% Democrat who is trying to change a lot of the views. We cannot call ourselves Americans if we don't believe in American manufacturing. If we cannot be self-sufficient, you can only call yourself an, a patriotic American if you support industries that build your tanks, build your products. And, 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 and is able to have a manufacturing base that supports your country. Once again, that great patriot Ronald Reagan exactly. is, is the one. <laughs> the, the people that have destroyed what we call, uh, the, the people that have really destroyed what's left of this country are those who like to wrap themselves in the flag. The reality is the patriotic folks are the folks who are anti-what we call free trade agreements, anti-unions, and all these, you know, these mm -hmm. different stances. So until, and, and, and what happens is we have to actually get engaged. And when I tell you that uh, wherever I am, whether it, it is in Kingwood with my, my uh, we have some wonderful Democrats in Kingwood that are starting to get on this fight, my dear Akua. We are going to get on board. At Tell them when I come through there, put some headlights on. <laughs> Blink them or something. Look, Egberto, uh, uh, before we go back to the phone, would you address uh, the Bush-Reagan Central American policy? Okay. Uh, I, as you know, I'm from Panama, and we got invaded uh, back in 1989 to get rid of uh, Manuel Antonio Noriega. And the fact of the matter is, while Noriega is bad to the to America, Noriega wasn't all that bad to many in Panama. And what we have to realize is the problem with drug trade and so forth. It's not a, a, a Latin American problem. It's not a Mexican problem. Uh, but we got we got the brunt of a political issue and a social issue in the United States. The people in America wanted their drugs, and the capitalists in Panama provided them with the drugs that they wanted to buy, just like any other okay. program. No other country has ever, uh, I mean, no, no first world country, if you will, has ever been invaded for uh, exporting something that the mother country desired. If, if America does not want drugs coming over the border or America doesn't want all these things occurring, uh, we need to change American habits. Yeah, the uh, the whole war on drugs, and I have really been misunderstood because I'm for legalizing it. Drugs should be legalized. I mean, there is no, I mean, uh, there is absolutely no reason why, uh, one of the reasons why we have, um, one of the reasons why we actually have a, a a bad drug policy is because we don't really look at what the problem really is. And the problem of drugs is, is rather simple. If you have demand for something, and that is what most capitalists preach, then you are also going to have those who want to use the product. And all these countries are doing is fulfilling, as bad as it may sound, these guys are fulfilling a demand. It's a demand. It's supply and demand. Supply and, uh, and if we really want to solve that problem, we solve whatever moral problem we have here with drugs 
and the problem goes away. What I say is, look, legalize the drugs, tax the drugs, and I don't, I don't regulate that bad word. Regulate the drugs, and not only that, use those funds to heal those who would have been aggrieved by having taken drugs. It's that simple. Now you will have gotten rid of so many businesses and so many beautiful homes, Crime and so many pays. beautiful neighborhoods, and let's, so many beautiful people. Let's go back to the fall. <laughs> Hello, you're on the air. Yeah, I was listening to that earlier call from the Bay Area who described this local Methodist church. I think it's Methodist church. He said how how they were uh, describing the situation in, in the apartheid situation in Africa, South Africa, was it? Yeah, it was South Africa. Yeah. That brought to mind two things about here. Haley Barber, mm-hmm. you know, he does the old switcheroo. Oh, no, I, I, I was always uh, against against slavery and against putting down on black people is a bunch of crap it's like over here we had the same thing over here you think back in the day with the black panthers trying to feed uh, kids breakfast before they go to school they were described in in the mainstream media here as some kind of black threat but now it's okay to to say martin luther king was a god and we have the same problem over here and and the common thread between what he was describing over the Bay Area uh, and, and about the situation in South Africa, and what we have now is this puritanical, crazy, extremist people that run around saying all these things. They have no compunction to say that the sky is green and the grass is blue. And then the next minute they'll say, oh, no, they never said that. Or, or that uh, what they say is not to be held to them like a fact. They come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. So they have no no shame at all i think we need to really either shun them or start throwing them overboard i am so tired of them sinking us on this one ship that we're living on they have no right to drill holes in the in the hull of the ship and then claim oh we oh we need uh we need to, to get a bilge pump going here I say screw that and screw them. <laughs> All right, Johnny, you're in rare form tonight. I'm excited to agree with you, Johnny. As always, thanks for your call. Let's go. Hello, you're on the air. Give me one second. Okay, I just want to say, like, uh, I also think a big problem is uh, it's somehow we forgot what economies are supposed to do. You know, the, the purpose of an economy is to provide human comfort. That's Boy, that's that is why you don't have to go. The reason why you don't have to go, and if you want to make a chair, you have to go outside and cut down a tree and polish it and do all the stuff that you have to do to it yourself. Because we have an economy where somebody else has already done that for you. Well, the, the, the this economy is providing comfort for those. Humans that are corporations. At the top. Exactly. Well, <laughs> and then the point is, it's supposed to provide comfort for everybody involved, not just oh, comfort yeah. for one individual. Everybody's supposed to benefit. Like all of humankind is supposed to benefit from having an economy. The problem is when you start doing capitalism or you do free markets, where individuals become so powerful, they actually can begin to manipulate the market with no their interests at the right. expense of others. Is when you start to have a huge problems. Do you remember the the situation where there was a banker who they were having economic times, and instead of him raising his salary because he and his wife and his family were comfortable, they forwent their their money and allowed the people who were 
in the bank to not lose their jobs. They made a little bit less, but he kept them all employed. And they did that time after time, and they always did fine. But when you have the person at the top say, well, I got to have a, like the guy said, he only had $650,000 in the bank like he was broke. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, he had to fire all these people. It's like, my having comfort is better than your feeding your family. That's not important. Well, I mean, remember our society is kind of weird. We're starting to get away from that public wealth and the sense of being a part of something, a, a part of a community where we all work together. Now it's just, you know, all individual. So, I mean, that's that's just the way, that's where it's going. And, it, and as long as our culture is like that, you're not going to really be able to. You know, I think partially this new technology of being able to write and say some horrible things to people and just hit a button and you're done with it as opposed to looking at somebody's eyes, seeing their passion, seeing their pain, that has a lot to do with how we're going through this and doing it without any problem. Two-edged sword. Yeah, it's a two-edged sword. Thanks a lot for your call. And, and keep no listening, please. Hello, you're on the air with Alberto Willies. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. Oh, yeah. The problem with drugs is plutocracy. And plutocracy, of course, is government by the wealthy. And the wealthy don't want these drug laws changed because there's too much money for them to be made uh, with the drug laws the way they are. And if they change the laws, just think of the unemployment. Are the businesses that you know they can't be making no money, and I know that's rents costing them a couple of thousand dollars. How can you mess sell that many uh, ribbons? Yeah. You know, hemp <laughs> <laughs> makes really good rope. Yes, yes. Absolutely. don't like it. Paper manufacturers hate it, and the people that grow trees for ten or twenty years hate the idea of a one-year crop that creates as much as it takes twenty years to grow a tree. To, and it, the paper is better. Right. Makes better clothes. Uh, I mean, all the reasons, just just him. But what about the prison guards? Think of it. A third of the prisons would be, the guards wouldn't be needed. And you know, uh, it's, it's really interesting because here in Houston, um, the district attorney, district attorney Lycos, has uh, kind of dealt with all of the very, very harsh, drug penalties a lot of them she is is not uh prosecuting she's she's uh trying to push people into rehab rather than the prison and i mean the police are going crazy and, and and in today's chronicle there was a huge editorial where they were castigating this woman and basically you know were just arguing to uh arrest people on uh uh, you know, these little microscopic uh, traces of drugs. Crumbs, yeah. Yeah. I have a question but, about that. Of course, that, the though. police, they want to make busts because of the confiscatory laws. Uh, they, that's where they get a lot of their right. money. They can, mm -hmm. they can seize property, and uh, it's, a, it's a way to for these police departments to pay for their SWAT teams that, that break down doors with no-knock search warrants and, and all kinds of stuff. These, these cowboys, they don't want... The laws change. But you know what concerns me about a lot of this? Uh, uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. But where are all our ministers and, and, and all our people in the community coming to the defense of Lycos? I mean, when I saw that on, uh, when I saw what she did, the first thing I thought about is, hey, I got to get a blog out of this. Finally, somebody with some sense. Uh, they find a kid with some marijuana or something like that. They're not going to destroy the rest of this person's career by giving them a record that they now. 
as opposed to being able to go to a good college or whatever would not be able to get into. My question is, where are our leaders in the community who came, who come out and finally say, wow, somebody that has finally done something different for, this, for the community? Right. It, it, it does more than, than, than give them a record. It tears families apart. Oh, yeah. Right. If, if you arrest the, the breadwinner, now you've got homeless, uh, possibly homeless uh, families. And, and if, if the son or grandchild is living with the grandmother and she lives in government housing, they take her house if this child even uses drugs, let alone tries to sell it. You, the, the, the drug laws are, are they like something that's put together by somebody that's insane. It was yeah. We're talking yeah. too much money to be made by laws the way they are, and they're not about to change them just because it's the right thing to do. Thank you for your call. Thank you for taking it. Uh, Egberto, we, we don't have much time. This has been a pretty fast-moving conversation. I would like for you to talk about uh, how and why uh, President Obama was elected, what he said to touch people who, uh, as, as you said in the book, uh, you, you heard a gentleman say, I'm voting for the N-word, <laughs> and uh, why he was willing to make the choice that he made when he clearly had issues with this. But talk about uh, the uh, policies that he's pushed, and then talk about some of your solutions. Actually, Obama's policies are, uh, his his platform was actually pretty darn good. Uh, he realized what was the, pre the, the most important problems that we had, which was the healthcare system. And that was, uh, you know, I have a wife with lupus, and mm -hmm. there was a long time that uh, we had our, our insurance rates were crazy. So he, he understood that healthcare was one of our major issues. He understood that education was one of our major issues. And he was able to put this all together, not only, uh, not only in a way that, that it felt like it was serving a particular set of people, but it was serving the whole of America. It also helped that Bush was so bad and that the economy under supply economics had so, had, had been so, so destroyed that it made it possible for him to have been elected before what I like to say before it was his time because I tell you before I never thought that he would have been elected back in 2008 the, 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 the country still was not ready to elect a minority and that and again a black person in the country the country was not ready and it shows right now if you take a look at how what he has done if you take a look at what he has done and how successful the individual policies, uh, both for, for women working, for health care, these things, have, he has finally codified social programs that going forward will be extremely effective for not only uh, any one class of people, not black folks only, but all of America. Now, those policies, they are, have been maligned by the right, but you have to ask yourself, why is it that people are so willing to accept what the right has been telling them about these policies? Think about what are the possibilities. I don't want to go into that specifically, but as far as solutions are concerned, I mean, the, the solutions are is, is always going to be education. We have to find a balance between government, the individual, and corporations. And right now we're completely off of balance. We're off of Keter. We have 
we have free trade that really makes no sense. And would you discuss free trade? Because a lot of people may not understand uh, your issues with it, but of course it goes back to these, the individual being units of labor. Right. And how, uh, because it's no longer about profit. It's about profit margin. Right. Corporations are not in to just profit. They're not there to just make a profit. They're there to make huge profits. And uh, free trade, if, if the, the, uh, the field is not equal, if, if you have no regulations, if, if your workers can put lead in paint, or if your workers are can you can get away with paying them thirty cent an hour or thirty cent a day, then uh these and it goes back to Mr. C's commentary on, on labor unions. Yes. A free on in two phase. Right. First uh, first of all, let me let me say one thing. I think every single American should be unionized. That's a, before I go into the free trade, I yes. think every single working American should be unionized. The uh, corporations have something known as the the Chamber of Commerce, and they have a lot of other trade organizations that work to support the policies that make them more profitable. I think it is incumbent on every American worker to be unionized so that they can negotiate some of these profits out of corporations. In other words, why is it that we do all the labor? When I say we, I mean the average American worker. Why is it that they provide all the labor but the spoils go to a shareholder who simply has capital investment, and that's a portion when I talk about capitalism, just the movement of money, uh, uh, the movement of capital making money makes no sense. But as far as free trade is concerned, you cannot have, a, first of all, first and foremost, we are Americans. Yes, I love the world. Yes, I'm from somewhere, and, 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 and that is fine. But there's a certain standard of living that you're asking us to marginalize if you want to implement free trade. And it doesn't matter what they say. And, I, and, and by this, I also include our great president, Senor Obama, that free trade cannot work. And the reason it can, it's a mathematical, you know, a lot of times President Obama likes to say, the reason this won't work, it is math. Well, the same thing about free trade, it is math. The math is simple. If you have a foreign country that can make something a lot cheaper than you can, then you will stop making it. And if you will stop making it, there will be less employment. And there's no other field that you can go into to mitigate what you've lost there. I mean, it doesn't matter what they try to say. It won't happen. If you want the, what's interesting is history's prologue. If we take a look at the, the curve of the middle class between 1980 and 2007, and that's, you know, that's because of the last data that we have, you'll actually see that. You'll actually see that middle class wages has either gone down or barely gone up in, 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 at certain regions. And, and, and at the same time, those people who move capital, and remember, these are not the working people, the people who move capital, their rate, rates have skyrocketed by over 300%. That is exactly what happens. If you're sending the labor outside, only those people who profit from having the labor not being here are going to be increasing in their wealth and income. And those who are doing the labor who have to compete with those that are that are cheaper, those that are marginalized, of course the labor, uh, of course your labor will fall, and you cannot increase either your income or your wealth. And that's where we're at. I tell you something. This is an this has happened in Central America, Latin America, like all, all other places. Uh, people, 
should start looking at this more seriously because when people stop having anything to lose or anything to that they when they reach to that point that they think I don't have any solutions anymore, you know what comes after that? Violence in the streets, chaos. I tell you what, and, and one of the things that we have to do is we have to remember for you to tell our audience where to get your book. Yes, but sir. let's go back to the uh, line. You're on the air with Egberto Willies. Here, uh, good evening, everybody. Good evening. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. This is Calvin. Oh, hey, Calvin. Over hey, the gate. Yes, sir. You know, sometimes I'm glad that I don't have a lot of school-educated sense, but I do have a lot of common sense because I totally disagree that everybody that works in America should be union because, um, you know, I come from an industry that 80% of the people out there in that industry not union, and they're doing a fine What job. industry is that? That's the transportation industry. 85% of the truckers on the road are non-union. The steel haulers. Yeah, you know, but Calvin, I, I really, I, I got issues with your position. I have several men in my family drive trucks, and they are getting screwed. They need a union more than anybody else. They are being treated as individual consultants. They don't have any benefits. They don't have any sick days. And and the, uh, whatever is done for them is is continually diminished. They need a union more than just about anybody else. Just because the truckers, they better do a good job because they'll be fired. Okay, okay, okay. We don't have much time, so let me get a little points into. Okay, uh, I don't know what company that they work for, but every company that they ever work for treated me fair. But one thing that you got to do, every man and every woman in this country, you got to uh, uh, judge your greed level. When I was in Los Angeles, California, picking up a load, going to Worcester, Massachusetts, and there was a load of clothes, and that load of clothes paid my company. $9,000, but my boss man was paying me 12 If I looked at that other man's money and compared it to mine, I never would be able to work with nobody. But if everybody in this country was unionized, then the mom and pop store wouldn't be able to have no employees. I couldn't start no business because I couldn't pay them no union wage. I believe that a man should be able to work for the deal that he made with his boss man. But, Calvin, let me just say this. I disagree mightily with you. And let me tell you this, that's some of that old myth about rugged individualism. The deal is happening and the reason people are waking up and organizing, and this is something my wife used to say who was in the counseling industry, she said, people are treated like they are individually crazy. And she said, one day they wake up and they see everybody's dealing with the same thing. So they have to say that some of this may be on me, but some of this is in the system. Some of this is in the system. Truck drivers are getting screwed. Now, the men in my family who are truck drivers, they're at the same position you were in. And they're not trying to make as much money as the boss, man. They just want to be treated fairly. And both of them have, I mean, they've driven long distances just like you have. I have seen their deal diminish. The one thing about that industry is that you could go get a job because people is getting screwed. So you could go get a job because they need people to replace the people that was getting screwed. It's, I disagree with you mightily, particularly about that industry because I happen to know something about it. But let me go ahead. You go ahead and, and, and say something else, Egberto, then we're going to have to get you off and, and get ready to get out of here for Cliff. 
let me say this. In every industry and on every job, you got people that cry, 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 cry. When I was young and came to Houston and didn't have no skill, I learned how to drive a dump truck. And from then and there, people took a chance on me and trusted me with $190,000 piece of equipment. They flew me, filled out my application on the phone, flew me to orientation, put me up for three days, taught me the rules and regulations of how to run up and down the road. And when the union drivers out there, Yellow Freight, Roadway, and all of them, when I was up there coming out of Canada and it was snowing ice everywhere, when I was pulling for Wallace and the truck lab, Wallace and me, Quail Cops, telling me, Drivers, use your own discretion. If the road is too bad for you to drive my equipment, go somewhere and park. But the union drivers had to get out there and skate on that ice because they was in the union. Well, let me just say this to you. The only thing I want to say to you is this. If the men who own those trucking companies get together and put together an association and lobby Congress, then the drivers should organize and be willing to do the same things and look out for themselves collectively. I, I got to give you about 30 seconds, and then we fix to close it out. I just believe every man should, should go ahead on and work for the deal that he agreed with. And, and, and every man, when that man out there in the Bay Area called you, a little while ago, and he was talking about the Bay Area. When Safeway Foods went on strike out there, and they needed somebody to haul their bread and milk, Eric paid me $1,700 a week to haul up and down the California coast, and you turn right across across that strike line because I needed that money to pay my bills. Every man should be able to deal for himself. And I don't need a gang of guys to go with me to talk to my boss man. I've been doing that all my life. And if we go back to that, this country would be much better. If we go back to unions, the reason that the middle class is diminishing is because people are not organizing and working together for each other as a collective. And that's why so many individuals are getting screwed. I'll talk to you later. We can take it up next week. Interesting enough, uh, what uh, he said is a mentality that a lot of the, the businessmen depend on people voting against their own interests. People, uh, he is of the belief that somehow his corporation cares about him. As far as the corporation is concerned, he is nothing but a division of a, a, a source of labor. He's that unit of labor you they, spoke about. They put just a little bit of a, of a carrot in front of him to make him believe that he's somebody. But as soon as there's something that is needed, Mr. Calvin, most respectfully, I would tell you, that your the, the the thoughts that you're having creates a problem for not only yourself but the American society at large, and it is that type of mentality that's going to actually destroy the country. All right, let's talk about where to get your book. We want to thank you for coming on. It's very interesting. I would recommend that you get it and read it. And you don't always have to read things that you agree with. This information is presented in a very cogent way, and there's a lot of uh, research and documentation to back it up. Once again, it is titled, As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. We'll have to get you back on because we got to talk about this whole class warfare thing. And I, I think my class is losing. I'm getting a little sick of it. But... I'm glad he can speak Spanish so he can get my phone off of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of trying to figure this out. <laughs> But you can find the book. I, I, you can find the book just about anywhere on, on online. Amazon.com. Again, the name of the book is, uh, as I see it, Class Warfare: The Only Resort to Right Wing Doom by Egberto Willis. You can also go to my website at 
Egberto Willis. You want to spell it He's out? Gotta for spell them? it. Let me spell that out. Here. E E G B as in boy E R T O W I L L I E S dot com. And uh, the book is all over the page that you can click on it and purchase it. Or I, I think I created a link once called uh, readthisbooknow.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's my brother Egberto Willis. We want to thank you once again. The name of his book is As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom. And uh, we'll be back next week. And we're going to be talking about uh, uh, ways to... Um, make a little money because one of the things that the people have to consider very different kind of ways this is something that uh, you and Guy talked about and we want to go back and revisit that so tune in come by and see me at Sip and Surf Saturday right. thanks a lot thank you Here's-